This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. The alpha-C-lactate had not, at the time, converted into diacetyl, so it was kind of lying in wait in that beer. This week on the show, you'll hear four real-life off-flavor troubleshooting stories, as well as how each issue was both discovered and remedied. This interview originally aired in December of 2017. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. Hi, my name is Anna Sauls, and I am the quality manager at Highland Brewing Company in Asheville, North Carolina. So Anna, what, what would you say to those who call sensory analysis a soft science? Uh, I would say that when you have a well-run program, the data that you can collect can help identify problems in the first place and then track down the source of those issues. Uh, When you have that along with an analytical and microbiological program, it's super beneficial. Uh, Sensory science is its own discipline and its own right. And I think that sometimes in brewing, we forget that, that there's a lot of principles that if you abide by them, it's a really strong tool for quality control. You've got four great stories for us today based on real-life practical problems that were resolved with the help of a strong sensory program. Before we jump into those stories, how about talking about the importance of eliminating bias and and how you go about that? Sure. Yeah, so if you're going to try and collect sensory data, it's really important that you um, avoid it being influenced by... uh, you know, how the person's drive into work was that day or the sound they're hearing in the background of the centrifuge, uh, you know, kicking back or something like that. You have to be really kind of aware that there's a lot of things that can influence the way somebody perceives a beer and you really want it to come down to the smell of that beer, the, the flavor of that beer directly in front of that person. And you want them to be focusing on that and trying to like very deliberately avoid in uh, being influenced by other factors. And so some of the best ways that you can do that is uh, train your panelists on appropriate tasting technique. 
Um, so just kind of getting them into a groove or routine so that when they're tasting, they're doing it the same way every time and paying attention to every aspect of that. Um, having the best environment possible, which when you work in a brewery is not necessarily going to be, you know, a perfect taste panel area, but really the best place you can find that's quiet, doesn't smell bad. Um, you don't have other people distracting you. Trying to get the best you can with that. And then also uh, training your panelists on uh, specific off characters that you would really want them to be to know were there before you put beer out in the market. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more. Why don't you comment on how you um, kind of what your training program looks like and how you go about validating your panelists? Sure. So um, I use uh, off character spikes. I uh, buy pure compounds and then make them into stock solutions. And then uh, stock solutions are dosed into uh, like a liter of beer, for example. I use the flavor standard spiking calculator from the ASBC to do that. Uh, but uh, so if someone was starting taste panel at Highland, I would try and get them into a training where I uh, had them exposed to the like 15 or so off characters that we regularly train on. Um, I would have them at like really high intensity and, you know, just say all the details about that off character. So they get a really strong uh, sense association with the name of that off character and whatever like impression they get from it. So not necessarily, if they don't get butter from diastole and they get butterscotch, that's fine. I want them to associate those things together. Um, and I, I start with training in that way. And then I uh, serve them spiked beer blind on my taste panel, along with the regular uh, beer that's being released to package so that I can keep track of their ability to detect those things. How about whenever you identify a panelist that needs more training for a, a specific compound, how do you go about doing that? Sure. So I, uh, I keep track of when my panelists are able to tell me when a spike, uh, when the beer has something wrong with it, and if they can tell me specifically what's wrong with it. And I can uh, list out all of those things for a particular panelist and sort of see where their abilities lie. And more importantly, where they uh, have partial anosmias or aromas that they just can't detect. It's really important to know that if a person uh, is unable to detect diacetyl at like a normal threshold le level, I really don't want to use their information if they tell me that a, a beer has diacetyl in it. And so I just keep track of their, um, their abilities when I test them to do that. You had an issue with diacetyl in an IPA that your sensory panel didn't actually catch. Why don't you tell us about that scenario? All right, so we had a, um, we we're creating a new fruited IPA and my taste panel, you're correct, it didn't, uh, did not detect it going through the normal processes. So we taste the beer in the fermenter, right? Uh, once it's been crash cooled, we taste it in the bright tank and then in package. Uh, this beer didn't start showing its off character until it was in package and it sat for a little while. Uh, that's because diacetyl um, has a like, aromaless and characterless precursor, uh, alpha-acetolactate. The alpha-acetolactate had not, at the time, converted into diacetyl, so it was kind of lying in wait in that beer. What was happening was we had uh, had a fruit addition of orange puree, and we had added it uh, post-fermentation. So our uh, diacetyl sensory, where we cook the diacetyl in the cellar, it passed that because we hadn't added the fruit yet. But when it was sitting in package, we had a beer that was um, 
centrifuged but not filtered, so it still had a little bit of yeast in it. It had uh, a little bit of sugar from that orange puree, which we hadn't at the time realized was a significant amount of sugar, and just like a surprising amount of enzymatic interaction just sitting in package at a low temperature. How did you find out about the problem? Uh, we had uh, low fills uh, taken home by uh, other coworkers, and they brought them back and told us that they were a diastole bomb. It was surprising and really hard for me to even process at the time because I'd had so much data telling me this beer was fine. But when I tasted it myself, it was really obvious. Uh, we also performed VDK distillation after that on this beer to see if it was in fact diastole and not maybe some other compound that we were getting. And it was about five times our normal acceptable threshold. So it was definitely there. Wow. You had some some other tanks still in process of the same brand when you discovered the issue. Uh, what did you end up doing with that beer? Right. So, so we had beer in the bright tank and we also had uh, several infermenters. Um, we purchased an enzyme called alpha-acetolactate decarboxylase. So that converts that odorless uh, precursor, alpha-acetolactate, directly to acetoin, which is a flavorless and odorless in compound. So it's where diastole could be converted to if it, like, given the right enzymatic environment. So we basically forced that process directly to an end compound that doesn't have an odor. And that worked, uh, that worked really well, particularly in the beers that were still warm. It didn't work quite as well in places where there was already some diacetyl conversion. Very cool. So what changes did you guys make to prevent this from happening in the future? So moving forward, we changed our uh, fruit addition uh, to mid-fermentation so that the yeast could work on that residual extra sugar uh, before we, we performed our diastole sensory on it. Uh, this reduced the orange impact, so we had to um, like add a little bit more uh, fruit each time in order to get the same fruit impact, but uh, it worked really well. We didn't have an issue again with uh, surprise diastole, if you will. We also beefed up our cooked diastole sensory. At the, at the time, we were just cooking the beer for a, an hour at 160 without filtering it, and then just smelling that to try and detect di di whether or not there was diastole kind of laying in wait. The cooking process pushes the alpha-acetolactate to diastole. We changed it from being a pass-fail setup to a rating setup so that uh, the panelist is thinking about the intensity level, not just whether or not it's present. And we also uh, started filtering those samples, spinning them down to get the yeast out of it because cooked yeast has its own distinct smell that you would have to smell past. And yeah, that's how we changed the preparation procedure. Very good. The only thing worse than diastole is surprise diastole in my book. <laughs> I agree. Coming up... Nobody enjoys doing this. It's gross, even if there is nothing wrong with the beer. But uh, it really puts us ahead of the game. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, 
be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweetbread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character, suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, a global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Don't miss the Tank Cleaning Fundamentals webinar May 18th. The Great District Northwest covers all things canning for their spring meeting by Zoom on May 21st. And the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. There's finally a beer industry conference you can put on your calendar that might actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew. Back to the show. All right. Well, tell us about uh, another scenario where you had uh, you had a rotten egg pale ale that your sensory panel did catch and failed. Right. So we had, uh, yeah, one of our pale ale failed sensory panel because it smelled like rotten eggs. Um, this is kind of something that happens has happened from time to time like uh, spaced out maybe six months at a time at the brewery, uh, but it had never happened with a beer that we had dry hopped. So hydrogen sulfide is pretty easy 
uh, a pretty easy problem to fix if you are kind of ahead of it, because all you really need to do is add some, uh, like, carbonate the beer or, like, push CO2 through the beer in order to, like, off-gas that compound, because it's very volatile. Hydrogen sulfide is a volatile compound. However, mostly everything you want to smell in a beer is also a volatile compound, so you're going to lose, like, desirable aromas, and particularly if it's a dry hot beer, you you might as well have just thrown the dry hop at the outside of the fermenter instead. So it was not fun to have to do that. So we had to have a balance of like how well we were uh, off-gassing the H2S while still kind of trying to maintain some of that hop aroma. It led me to want to investigate further into why this was happening. Uh, there was a kind of like a standard, I don't know, concept or idea that at least in my head, I thought that most of the H2S that was produced in fermentation goes away because it bubbles out while the beer is actively fermenting. Um, but when I did a little bit of research, I found an article that sort of changed my perception of that uh, and, and just kind of spoke of, it was the Suntory Limited Research Center in Osaka, Japan, had a paper that demonstrated that when you have a cooler fermentation, it resu results in fewer yeast in solution, and that has a really strong impact on whether or not the yeast reconsume that hydrogen sulfide. And the whether or not a beer has that eggy off character has a lot more to do with active yeast in solution uh, reconsuming it. If they're not there, that's uh, generally what's going to cause a lot of eggy character. Okay, so how did you address this um, this issue for you know future fermentations? So we changed the the raising of the fermenter to a diastole rest temperature was a like human choice. So uh, they were taking uh, Play-Doh measurements, and then once it reached a certain Play-Doh, it was time to raise it to diastole rest temperature. So we found out that that like when the beer was ready was really an average of a couple of days, and so we just changed it to an automation so that it always happened because human error was a, a factor in this, um, just getting getting missed, or maybe it was really close to that right Play-Doh, and then waited another 24 hours and was well past it by the time. So we... That's, uh, that's pretty cool. We just did an episode uh, a couple podcasts ago, episode 63, uh, with um, Brian Favor from Deschutes, where they, they're now using predictive analytics to basically nail those transitions and get those those free rises correct as as well as the rest of fermentation you should check it out it's pretty interesting stuff but they're basically trying you know solving the same problem there yeah that sounds awesome um okay you had a you had a in another case you had a pilsner fail sensory for acid aldehyde on a bright tank sample uh after it had both passed as a crash cooled fermenter and also a line tasting that was going on at during packaging why don't you tell us about that one and how all that's even possible Sure. So our taste panel is meant to be kind of uh, a baseline or, or like the beer really shouldn't be going to package before it passes. But when some there are some situations in production where you you're like, OK, well, we really don't want to. It's it's been fine so far. It passed at these certain points. Let's just taste it right here and move forward. It's going to go on panel in maybe an hour or so. I'm like, you know, surely it's fine. And this was one of those situations where we tried to go ahead and release it and ended up uh, with the beer failing uh, pretty aggressively on taste panel and uh, the keg, it was actively being kegged at the time and that had to be stopped immediately, unfortunately. And so nobody in production likes uh, 
that sort of aggressive uh, <laughs> behavior. <laughs> but uh, and so, but it kind of allowed for a really good demonstration of the value of the panel. And yeah, it had, the beer had done fairly well, but not wonderfully as a fermenter. Um, it pa- it uh, failed really clearly as a bright, and then the kegs that had come from that bright also failed really consistently. So that was a nice confirmation of the efficacy of the taste panel. And so in order to remediate that, uh, we just uh, blended it out with a, another pilster that, and uh, until we knew that it was below the flavor threshold for acetaldehyde or aromatic threshold for acetaldehyde. And we did some uh, chemical tests on that as well to determine that it was right again. Okay, so that, that threshold was done analytically, not just by a, a panel? Correct. It was analytical and sensory. So, Great. yeah, both cool. together. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, some of my favorite memories uh, working in production breweries are when someone comes rolling out of the office screaming and waving their hands to stop stop whatever it is you're doing. Shut so, everything down. That's right. So, Okay, well, um, your micro program uh, picked up a uh, lactic acid bacteria. Uh, why don't you talk about how that uh, situation unfolded and how your sensory program was able to support the troubleshooting on that one? The biggest error we made when troubleshooting this problem was that we were too hesitant to act on what were positives in our micro program. We, we got um, HLP hits in uh, that were obviously lactic acid, and instead of reacting uh, by putting the beer on hold or something like that, we, we just were like, well, we'll do rechecks. And the uh, sensory aspect of this was a lot actually rechecks. So we would take, um, we did micro again, which uh, on the beer that looked like it had had a lactobacillus hit, and that takes five days to sort of come through, and it came through as positive again. And so that's when we threw a couple bottles into our incubator to force age them. And once we did that, they were also pretty dramatically showing characteristics of being spoiled. It was tart, the pH had been lowered, and it had a lot of off characters, like unpleasant and abnormal aromas for a barzen. Um, yeah, so it was mainly just having that beer uh, and kind of forcing it such that the if there was going to be microbial activity, it would happen faster. Your former colleague, Eric uh, Jorgensen, talked about this particular case also back on episode 45 or 46 from a strictly more from a micro standpoint, but it's kind of neat to have the other side of the story too. Okay. So what changes did you guys make to prevent that going forward? So once we had um, done some sort of backtracking and connected all of the uh, contaminated beer, uh, it all kind of like went back to this one fermenter. So we uh, opened up that fermenter and found that there was a bad weld on a racking arm. So one of the first things we did was remove that, which um, was, yeah, a dramatic difference and improved everything greatly. Uh, we also started to uh, put, anytime we package beer in a bottle or a can, we placed one of them in the incubator and tasted it a week later. And nobody enjoys doing this. It's gross, even if there is nothing wrong with the beer. But uh, it really puts us ahead of the game. If we do uh, see a micro hit or concern, we can immediately take that bottle and that's been sitting in kind of like a best environment for bacteria to grow in. We can take that out, perform micro on it, and also taste it and get a pH immediately rather than having to wait because it was a reactive choice. Yeah, that's good. Okay. 
Any uh, any comments on how the sensory program has evolved at Highland over the years? And maybe could you offer any tips for breweries who are struggling to, to build a relevant, useful sensory program? Sure. Um, one thing I would note is that getting people to participate is a lot harder than you might expect. Um, you have to incentivize it in some way. Be, um, from, from my panelists, the fact that I kind of let them keep track of their abilities and give them like a percentage level of how they're able to detect off characters and stuff that makes it into a bit of a game. And so when I have like more competitive panelists that really keeps them coming back and they're, they want to, they want to get it right, you know, and it, um, it's important that they're aware that it's not just a game and they're also releasing a uh, product for us. And that's very important, but that's one of the things that motivates them to, to attend. Uh, you can give them snacks. That's a way to motivate people to attend taste panel. You would think that just having them be able to drink beer in the middle of their work day would be enough, but it's not. Well, it's not always um, good beer. That's the problem. <laughs> that's, that's true. Exactly. It might be, not be what they want. Yeah. You don't get like six samples of your favorite Highland beer. It's what it's whatever's coming through process all right so um, gamification and snacks anything else <laughs> yeah um i would also say that the taste panel setup for highland hasn't uh evolved a lot except for just trying to just continue to train and have people be like as focused as possible on on doing it the right way even if it's not at our like at our formal taste panel at that time i still want people to be you know if you need to taste something on the fly, like go so, just walk somewhere that's quieter than right next to the bottle filler so that you can at least focus on what you're doing. I try to encourage that and just uh, get the best like at line tasting I can. Awesome. Yeah, I guess if I was going to say any advice, it's just like figure out what those like sensory principles are and just try and abide by them the best way you can within like the brewery environment. No one, no one's really expecting you to have a statistically significant number of people tasting the beer. You just got to do the best you can with what you have. That was Anna Sauls here on the master brewers podcast. If you like what you heard today, pick up a copy of the 2017 master brewers conference proceedings from the Master Brewers Bookstore at mbaa.com. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Seven, 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 seven.